Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So we have just been praying, but uh, let's just continue in in prayer for a moment. And Heavenly Father, we just pray for your help in this session. Uh, We've prayed that uh, in song just a moment ago that you might show us Christ. So please do that in this session, we we pray. The risen Christ, the risen Lord Jesus. And show us him in such a way that our fears and our doubts are cast away. That we might be empowered and motivated and inspired to participate in your mission. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So this is our passage. Uh, Let me uh, read it uh, to us. Matthew 28, uh, beginning at verse 16. And the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Now I think that all of us will know what it looks like, or what it feels like, uh, to be frozen into inactivity by fear and doubt. I suppose this is easiest to see in children. So think of our children when they were learning to Uh, ride bicycles, especially our our daughters learning to ride bikes and uh, really not getting very far at all because they had the brakes permanently on. It is hard to get very far at all, isn't it, when you have the brakes permanently on when you're cycling. And even our son, Sam, who's uh, much more risk-loving and adventurous uh, than than our daughters, uh, when it came to diving backwards off a three-metre diving board... Even here, he, we could see, grappling with fear and doubt. Quite reasonable, in my opinion. Uh, But fear and doubt, as the instructor desperately trying to persuade him that it was perfectly safe uh, to do this thing. But more generally in life, and especially in the Christian life, there is this struggle with fear and doubt that leads to inactivity. Uh, I think we probably... We don't like talking about doubt, do we? Perhaps it's about time we did. We hardly even admit it to ourselves, let alone to anyone else when we we come along to to a church meeting. But one of the key ways in which doubt is revealed is in evangelistic or or missional inactivity. A lack of missionary zeal. That is one of the key ways in the Christian life that doubt is revealed. Now, I'm not just talking about the fact that so few of us are are prepared to face the costs of of cross-cultural mission, or that there is that. I'm thinking about mission more generally, as Jesus defines it in the verses that we're looking at in this session. Um, Self-consciously acting to make disciples, that, that kind of very general way of thinking about mission. But our doubt makes us slow to move uh, into unattractive areas of Sheffield, even, uh, let alone the the rest of the world. 
Our doubt makes us slow to talk warmly and openly of the Lord Jesus with everyone we meet. We, we hold back in those things. And uh, our doubts even makes us slow to, to build up one another as disciples uh, when we meet together. There was a very sobering quote in the uh, Church of England newspaper just last week uh, from a minister who said that he had, you know, he'd spent most of his life thinking about mission in one way or another. Now, he'd, ever since his, his ordination, he'd been discussing mission outreach, talking about it, thinking about it. Uh, but this is what he says. Now being fully trained and fired up, I'm about to retire, never actually having done it. And that's the danger of good intentions, but limited action that I want to address in this session this morning. And the aim of both of these talks has been that we would be encouraged in missionary zeal uh, by thinking Trinitarianly about mission. And uh, we've tried to be doing that by engaging uh, with, the, with two passages of scripture. Now as a very brief aside here, just let me say that what we're trying to do in these sessions is, 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 is to engage with some high order, what you might call high order theological concepts such as Trinity, We've been doing that across the two days. While nonetheless closely engaging with the biblical texts. I want to encourage you in that that general approach to doing theology. It's interesting, one of the things I did in preparation for these talks uh, was to read a little on this guy called uh, Jürgen uh, Maltzmann. He's a a German theologian, he's very interested in the Trinity. Um, You can probably just about see him in in the gloom, he's a... Pointing rather rudely, we might have a caption competition. Uh, imagine what he's saying at this point. You lazy English people, read my books, or something like that. Uh, anyway, he was a, a theologian who was very interested in the Trinity, the mission of God, the theology of hope, you know, all the kinds of things that we've been talking about over these two days. Uh, so you can see why I thought it might be relevant to, to read up a little bit on him. Well, I have to say to you, what a waste of time. What a shocking waste of time. Um, I found Maltman so disengaged from the biblical text, so really disengaged from anything, uh, so much sort of floating around in a sort of conceptual and abstract world of his own making, that very little, uh, very hard to make anything of, of it at all. And when he does engage with reality, um, it's uh, in sus- along suspicious lines. Um, that he's really thought about it in advance as suspiciously ideological lines that it actually comes out into practice and perhaps you might even say suspiciously Marxist ideological lines so we're not trying to do it this way okay and uh, whatever you think of these talks you're getting a better deal than reading the entire works of Jürgen Moltmann and very much more concise okay, at the very least so our method instead uh, is this to look at these two Trinitarian passages from uh, Matthew's Gospel. Um, Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, which is what we were looking at yesterday. And uh, today we're going to look at the Great Commission in Matthew uh, chapter 28. So we begin with the text of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Uh, Here it is again, if you've got it in front of you, that'll be helpful too. And you can see that I've chosen this passage in part because of that uh, very striking Trinitarian formula in verse 19. As you engage in mission, says Jesus, as you make disciples, 
you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, says the Lord Jesus. But the other striking thing in these verses, the other thing that uh, might strike you as you're reading through it, is the mention of doubt. It's there in verse 18. And I want to suggest that, um, sorry, it's there in verse 17. I want to suggest that this is really the background issue in these verses, the problem of doubt. Uh, You see, most of the uh, issues raised in the gospel story uh, up to this point have uh, all been resolved by this point in Matthew 28. The authority of Jesus has been established against the the rival authorities that he's been fighting against in in the temple. The temple has effectively been closed down and uh, he has been raised. So that's solved that conflict in the gospel. Uh, the necessity of Jesus' death to complete the mandate that, that he was given by his father has been proved. Uh, so he did, he did die, just as he said he must die, and now he's been raised. That's all been completed uh, so that his people, so that God's people can be saved from their sins. All that's been completed. But there is one issue remaining, and it is this issue of doubt. See, doubt and what uh, Matthew calls Little faith had been a major issue for the disciples throughout the gospel story. And one way of seeing this is to trace uh, the story of doubt as it's told by Peter in the gospel. Now those funny looking diagrams on your handout are there to illustrate some uh, various different types of storyline. I just want to run through uh, this with you so we can get to the storyline that focuses on Peter in a moment. And it's just one way that you can think about the shape of a story. Uh, roughly speaking there on the horizontal axis, we've got um, time, story time. And then on the vertical axis, something like how things are going for the, for the main characters, the status of the, of the main characters in the story. So a comic plot uh, has a sort of smiley face to it. It goes something like this. We begin with things going okay, but then there's a crisis or a complication or a problem. Uh, But then in the end, all of that gets resolved and everyone lives happily ever after. That's a a comic plot. A tragic plot is the reverse of that. Nobody lives happily ever after. That's a tragic plot. Now, most plots, of course, are a little bit more complex than that. Uh, So this is Cinderella, for example. Many Hollywood movies, you may note, uh, next time you watch one, follow this pattern. There's a crisis which gets partially resolved But then there's a further crisis, and then that gets resolved. Uh, So Cinderella goes to the ball, that's resolving one crisis, but then leaves all in a mess as the clock strikes 12, that's setting up another crisis. But then finally the prince finds her, and everyone lives happily ever after. Uh, So we trust. Um, Other stories, this is Hamlet, you might describe this as a complex tragedy. The plot goes up and down in a fairly irregular fashion, much like life, I guess, in fact. But then, in the end, everyone dies. Um, that's literature for you. Uh, one that I haven't put on the, on the handout is this one. This is uh, Franz Kafka, um, Metamorphosis. I think one of the greatest uh, short stories ever written. Certainly got the greatest opening line, which goes like this. Uh, one morning, as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he'd been changed into a monstrous, verminous bug. 
It's really hard to better that as an opening line <laughs> for a story. It's fantastic. And uh, this is what that story looks like. Uh, that's where it starts, and it all goes downhill from there. Now, um, Matthew's gospel has this sort of shape to it. This is on the handout as well. Until just before the end, it's something like a tragedy. Uh, you see, things have begun very well as Jesus has arrived and is proclaiming the kingdom, and he's done that in word and in deed. And, but then we get a series of crises which shatter any sort of simplistic optimism about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he's facing opposition and doubt from people all the time. These crises culminate in Jesus being executed on a cross. Uh, but in the end, that is the wonderful plan of God, and Jesus is resurrected and the, the kingdom is secure. In the end, it's more, much more like uh, a comedy, happy ending. Now, Peter's story is very much part of that, and I'm just showing that the, the portion of Peter's story that starts from the middle of the gospel, from, from Matthew chapter uh, 16. Peter's story is the story of a disciple with some faith who nonetheless struggles with doubt. And in his struggle with doubt, uh, he is eventually humbled and rescued by Jesus. It's very interesting, actually, that the whole of, of that story is prefigured by an event that happens in chapter uh, 14. This is the event when Jesus is walking on the water and then Peter goes out to, to meet him. You might remember that uh, from Matthew chapter 14. And what happens there is that Jesus is standing on the water. It's a sort of majestic, divine revelation of, of, of what Jesus really is like. And Peter initially responds with faith to what's going on there, steps out to join him on the water. But as he takes his eyes off Jesus and sees the wind and the storm, uh, he begins to sink. Uh, He is Peter, after all, the rock, Uh, so he sinks like a stone. And at that moment, he cries out to the Lord Jesus, save me. And uh, Jesus addresses his doubt. He says, why did you doubt? And uh, as he rescues him, amongst all the disciples, he evokes in them worship. He addresses doubt and evokes worship. It's very interesting that those precise same words appear in the Great Commission passage that we're looking at in this session. uh, Where Jesus, in reverse order, I guess, Jesus evokes worship in his appearance as uh, the resurrected Lord. And uh, in what he says deals with doubt, the very same words. But the story in chapter 14 of of Peter really just prefigures the the, the biggest story of Peter's doubt in the gospel. See, it's all looking very good in chapter 16, which is the moment where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter gets Jesus' blessing for what he's just said. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell that you tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it but you can see there and this is the pattern um, in the picture within a very few verses everything has begun to go wrong by denying that Jesus needs to go to the cross Peter finds himself siding with Satan and later on in the story when Jesus is arrested Peter effectively abandons him he follows at a distance and ends up denying Jesus altogether. His fear 
and his doubt have got the better of him at that point. He goes so far, in fact, in Matthew's gospel to call down a curse upon himself. It's an extremely serious moment. In Matthew's gospel, at that point, there is nothing really to distinguish Peter from Judas. In the end, the only thing that distinguishes them is the fact that Peter goes back to Jesus after the resurrection while Judas takes his own life. So it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yes, Jesus is building his church on Peter. Peter is the first disciple he called. He's in many ways the leader among the disciples. He's a sort of representative disciple. Later on, he'll be the first Christian preacher. Uh, Paul will describe him as the pillar of the church. But if we add any false illusions about Peter's status, by the end of the gospel, those are going to be squeezed out by what has happened to him in this story of his doubt. There is nothing special about Peter. In the end, all that's left of him is his confession of Christ. And it's interesting that it's his confession of Christ is what he proclaims as he begins to preach in Acts chapter 2. In other words, it's on a broken and humbled Peter that Jesus builds his church. One who has been through doubt and out the other side. In other words, one of the ways in which Matthew's gospel works as we, as we kind of align ourselves with some of the main characters, and especially people like, like Peter, is to deal with our doubt as well. Uh, so as we line with Peter, we go through this story, uh, we identify with his, empathize with Peter's doubt, and uh, it moves us from a state of doubt and little faith through humility, like Peter, to a place of faith and missionary zeal. That's one of the ways in which this gospel is working. And I think we'll see that very clearly in these final verses of the gospel. That the purpose of these verses is for disciples who doubt to be transformed by the Trinitarian work of God uh, into disciples who make disciples. And uh, part of that, we're going to explore more in a moment, is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them in the name of the Trinity. Or to put it in another way, mission is being caught up in the unstoppable Trinitarian mission of God. Mission is being caught up in the unstoppable Trinitarian mission of God. Now I'm going to just take this uh, statement that, uh, that's on your handouts and in your, uh, up on the screen there, split it up and take it step by step just as we did yesterday. So the first step is this, is, this is verses 16 and 17. The disciples who doubt. This passage addresses disciples who doubt. Matthew 28, starting at verse 16, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now you'll notice that these are people who know Jesus and know who he is. They were with him during his earthly ministry and they know who he is and they recognise him. When they first saw him, they recognise him and they worship him. It's rather like the episode back in the boats in uh, chapter 14. That is, they express that in attitude or gesture, a complete dependence, a complete submission to him as a divine figure, uh, quite possibly by falling down and prostrating themselves before him. 
seems the right response, doesn't it, to what they're seeing. And yet, some doubt it. Uh, Are these doubting people different to the ones who are worshipping? You know, so we've got some, maybe a few of the disciples who are worshipping and then some of them who are doubting. Uh, Well, some try to massage it that way and try and say so, but that's not really how it reads, is it? Matthew doesn't doesn't describe it that way and doesn't mention anyone else here. The 11 worshipped and some doubted. Or actually, you could translate it uh, simply like this. Uh, When they saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. Uh, That's a more natural translation, really, of these verses. In other words, uh, perhaps they all doubted at this point. Certainly we can say at least some of those worshipping disciples doubted. You see, the doubt besetting the disciples has survived all the way to the end of Matthew's gospel. Even seeing the risen Lord Jesus hasn't yet quenched it. And of course, doubt has survived beyond this moment in Matthew 28, as we experience similar kinds of doubt today. Nonetheless, though, uh, doubt is not the note on which the gospel ends. The gospel ends on a much more triumphant note. And the key thing that we learn right at the end of the gospel The key reminder right at the end of the gospel is something has happened that can change things, that can address that doubt and lead to a missionary zeal. It doesn't automatically wipe doubt away, to be sure, but the finished Trinitarian work of God does mean that doubt can be addressed. Something has happened, which means that disciples who doubt can, and this is the next point, be transformed by the finished Trinitarian work of God. The verse which declares this new thing, which makes all this possible, is verse 18. Then Jesus came near, we might say, came near to address their doubts and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's just a few words, isn't it? It's 12 in English, it's nine in the original Well, what an amazing statement, what an amazing summary, really, of what's been achieved by the end of the gospel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I want us to feel the weight of those words this this morning because it's it's only, I think, as we feel the gravity of what's what's happening at the moment, Jesus says that everything else is going to kind of fall into place. This is the completion of of something that's building and building over Matthew's gospel. Uh, The thing that we we saw begun, in fact, in Matthew chapter 3 yesterday. It's the final confirmation that the task taken on by the Son at his baptism, supported by the Spirit, approved by the Father, has been completed. Yesterday, that's what we were looking at, isn't it? The task they took on in, in love for one another. That particular task they took on in love for one another with a love which overflows to sinners struggling under the shadow of death. That particular task has been completed. So just remember how we left things last time. God has acted to do something about uh, the, the, the rift or the chasm between the heavens and the earth that's been created by sin. Uh, the sun has appeared 
as it were, behind enemy lines to deal with the problem. Uh, to deal, um, he's been born of, of, of Mary by the Holy Spirit. He's been named according to the will of his father to be called Jesus because the father's will is to save his people from their sins. And last time we were thinking about how it is baptism, the son publicly shows his willingness to take that particular task on. It is the task of the servant of the Lord uh, from the prophet Isaiah, uh, the one who will die as a curse bearer for the people, the one uh, who is numbered with the transgressors, transgressors and that's, that, that's, the, that's what he's symbolizing by going through the baptism, which is a baptism for the confession of sins, numbered with the transgressions and taking on the curse of God uh, in their place. That task is now completed. Jesus has died, borne that curse, and has been vindicated and raised again. At the baptism, the Spirit publicly showed his support for that, his love and support for that, confirming, his, confirming the Son's authority to forgive sins and give life, uh, an authority that's now fully realised through Jesus' death and resurrection. That support has now all been vindicated. Again, that is all completed. At the baptism, the Father publicly voiced his love and approval as the Son took on the task of the servant. And with that particular task now completed, he now cements that love and approval by giving the Son all authority in heaven and on earth. That is what Jesus is saying here. All authority, I am the Son, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by my Father. That's a a good way to read it. So now the picture is a bit more like this. Things have really moved on in terms of the barrier between the heavens and the earth. Is this what I was calling yesterday the kingdom of the heavens? Uh, Well, no, not quite, not yet. Uh, God does not rule heaven and earth unopposed yet. But we might well say that is the pivotal step. It is the pivotal step. It's still the kingdom coming in power in some sort of way. And that the fact that that pivotal step has happened, has been made, is proved by the risen Lord Jesus drawing near to the disciples to declare it with all authority. And, that, and perhaps that alone is, is enough to drive out doubt. And in the place of doubt, participation, incorporation into the Trinitarian work of God, the servant work of the Son. You see, though the, the particular task taken on by the Son at his baptism uh, to be numbered with the transgressors and uh, equipped with his life-giving spirit and die as a curse bearer, all those things for the forgiveness of sins, although that is now completed, the task of the servant of the Lord, from the prophet Isaiah, actually is not yet completed. It is a bigger task than that. Isaiah 49 verse 6, one of the tasks of the servant is to take the light of salvation out to the nations. We can talk about the finished Trinitarian work of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but there is also the unfinished Trinitarian work of God too. 
the servant work of the Son. That is still to be completed. And that is the task that Jesus now draws his own disciples into. So what's going on here? We've got disciples who doubt are being transformed by the Trinitarian work of God, the finished Trinitarian work of God, fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, then caught up in the unfinished Trinitarian work of God by taking the light of that salvation out into the nations. Transformed into, then, disciples who make disciples. Verse 19, Go therefore, says Jesus, Given this pivotal step has happened, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, what Jesus has done allows him to incorporate the disciples into a task And it's a task which God's people have failed at lamentably in the past. It is the task of taking light out into the world. It's a task that so far only Jesus himself has been involved in. Only Jesus has made people his disciples so far in the gospel. But now it's remarkable, isn't it? Now he commissions his disciples to join him in that task. The task of making disciples in all the nations. And you can see here that uh, there are two aspects of what that's going to involve. Baptising and teaching. And uh, today is just the first of those that I want to focus on. We could talk talk much more about the teaching side of things. uh, But I want to focus on uh, the first of those. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me say three, three quick things about this amazing clause, these amazing few words. First thing to be sure of, first of all, it is there. Uh, some have wondered whether this, uh, this little clause was a later addition, uh, sort of squeezed in, a sort of later Lots of Trinitarian ideas squeezed into Matthew's gospel for the convenience of the church. But actually the manuscript evidence, when you look into it closely, is incontroversible. It is completely clear that this is there in the original. It's stunning, really. Scholars still manage to make pompous uh, declarations, such as um, there is no developed Trinitarian theology in Matthew's gospel. You find that scattered across the commentaries. But I hope we're seeing, uh, even in these two sessions, just what nonsense that is. It's very developed, the Trinitarian theology in Matthew's gospel. That's the first thing to say. In other words, we can't ignore this. First thing. Here's the second thing. This is probably about water baptism. In other words, the, the reformers were right to take this as the key verse to support the practice of water baptism within the church. It's commanded by Jesus. The sacrament command, the water baptism sacrament commanded by Jesus. This is where you would look in the New Testament if you wanted to defend it. And I, I think we can say that they were probably right about that. Now some have questioned whether this is about commanding the disciples to go out and do 
water baptisms. After all, you could read it this way, for example. You could read it, baptizing them, not in water, as like John did, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, so some have argued that that's the way we should take it, and this has nothing to do with water at all. But I think, and I think we'll see this more clearly in just a moment, it's much more likely that the, the mention of baptism here is um, that's here connected to Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, this is here so that we quickly get the third thing that I want to say. It's to help us to make a connection across the pages of the gospel. That thirdly, this is very deliberately pointing us back to that episode in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, very deliberately pointing us back to Jesus' own baptism, which of course was a water Baptism. This is probably the most important thing to take from these words, that connection across the pages of the gospel. It should be obvious, I think. What have we got here? We've got baptism, we've got the Father, we've got the Son, we've got the Holy Spirit. Uh, In these few verses, we've got other connections, like um, in the very first line of the episode, there's a a reference to Galilee. Jesus comes from Galilee back in chapter 3. The disciples are coming to Galilee here in chapter 28. Lots of very, very prominent, obvious, self-conscious connections between these two episodes. In other words, somehow what the disciples are commanded to do here connects new disciples to what was begun back in chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, as Jesus was baptised. And remember, that was all about Jesus' son taking on the role of the servant with the support of the Spirit and the loving approval of the Father. So a reasonable implication is that the, the first stage in making a disciple is to incorporate them into that Trinitarian work. That's what you're doing as you baptize someone. Both the finished work and the unfinished work. Okay? So as someone submits to baptism, as a new disciple, they're submitting to to be served by Jesus. There's a a humble submission for the forgiveness of sins. But they're also being drawn in to participate in the ongoing work of the servant, taking the light of salvation out to the nations, which is also, of course, a Trinitarian work. It's done by Jesus' disciples under the leadership of the Son, according to the will of the Father, and it's empowered and equipped by the Spirit. And I, I'd like to suggest, I mean, nothing huge hangs on this, but this, I'd like to suggest that this incorporation into the Trinitarian work of God was probably marked, and is intended to be marked, with a water baptism. Why? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, the chief thing is to recall the baptism of Jesus. To recall that Trinitarian work that was begun right back there into which a new disciple is being uh, incorporated. Now, do we talk about these things when we baptise people? Um, I've just been talking about... Do, 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 they, do, they, do they feature in our, our baptismal liturgies? Uh, we, we might say not really. Certainly not in full. I kind of wonder whether they should be. See, baptism, as, as Matthew is describing it in his gospel, is, is much more, it is a membership right, but it's more than a membership right. It's a, it's a commissioning. It's much more dynamic. It's commissioning into a missionary program. 
It'd be very good to talk about that whenever anyone gets baptised. In other words, baptism signifies not just something static, not just a change of status at a moment, but something dynamic, something that you're joining, participating in. We do very well to acknowledge that. Much more we could say about baptism, of course. But the bigger thing and the main thing here to note is that uh, the dynamic of mission more generally, mission is much more than just responding to a command. Mission is being caught up in the unstoppable Trinitarian mission of God. Now let me uh, finish this uh, session by thinking about how that compares to what we might call... um, Uh, non-Trinitarian mission. Uh, What would mission look like without a Trinitarian God? Well, I think we could say in general it would be very, very different. And that kind of mission would have to be, because of its difficulty, driven by something very harsh like fear or guilt. And it would be the kind of mission that would be plagued by doubt. You see, if God were not Trinity, he would not be able to engage with us across that divide between the heavens and the earth in in quite the same way that we've seen in Matthew's gospel. The command to to engage with mission would have to, if you like, be shouted across the divide at a distance without any personal involvement from, from God himself. But because that command would then be shouted across the divide, uh, I think it would leave people with very many doubts when it comes to following and obeying it. You'd have to have something very uh, strong-handed in terms of incentives to make the mission actually happen. So think about Islamic mission, for example. And I have to say, I'm not a huge expert on the history of Islam, but what could we say in general about that in history? How has Islam spread? And typically, especially in the early years, you'd have to say that it's spread by military conquest. Perhaps it's not quite fair to say that it's spread at the point of a sword, but certainly, you know, as states became Islamic, it was very much more, it became easier for the members of those states to live in such places by conforming uh, to the state religion. You might also say uh, that the the lack of of hope and assurance that exists in that kind of setup is perhaps not surprising to see a certain amount of extremism, the kind of desperation that's, that's associated with a lack of hope will lead to people acting in desperate ways. And we do see that in Islam. So Islam is very, very much dependent in its mission upon these kind of socio-political structures and, and conquests. And when those are disrupted, um, it becomes very fragile. I'll take another example, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So here we've got another explicitly non-Trinitarian movement. And uh, I think we can say uh, fairly clearly where the mission is motivated by fear and guilt. So witnesses within the movement are told that they're under command to, come up, to engage in public preaching. Uh, they go out in pairs. That seems to be not so much for mutual support, but rather mutual observation to make sure that the other is doing it. They're instructed to devote as much time as they possibly can to that. 
They're required to submit an individual monthly field service report. And uh, baptised members who fail to submit a report every month are termed irregular and may be counselled by elders. Those who do not submit a report for six consecutive months are termed inactive. And uh, the weight of the discipline then comes down on them. That is mission, isn't it, that's motivated by fear and guilt. And of course we could say similar things about uh, some mission that goes under a more orthodox Christian label as well. There's plenty of dysfunctional Christian mission too. Mission could be Trinitarian in name, but not at heart. Um, There are Christian-like, if you like, examples of of that uh, mission through military conquest that I was talking about earlier with Islam. And even today, it's tempting for pastors to motivate inactive congregations through guilt. You know, it's, it's an easy thing to get into, especially in moments of desperation. You know, anything to get some sort of response from those blank faces uh, that greets uh, a pastor on a Sunday. But we'd have to say that is an, an act of desperation. And it's not consistent with being caught up in the Trinitarian work of God. So as we draw to a close, I hope you can see some of the advantages of thinking about mission uh, as it should be understood, Trinitarianly. Uh, Because in Trinitarian mission, disciples are caught up in the Trinitarian work of God. It's not something that's imposed at them from a distance, if you like. It's not something that's just shouted across the divide between the heavens and the earth. In Trinitarian mission, they are motivated and supported by relationships and love. As the the love works within the Trinity and then overflows in God's mission, that then motivates those who are caught up in it. It is not then motivated by fear or guilt. Trinitarian mission begins with the preaching of the gospel to engage the heart and mind. It's those things, as we've been seeing over these two days, that it's those things are going to drive out the sense of hopelessness we have as people who live under the shadow of death. Those things are going to drive out fear and doubt. The son took on a task out of love, dying as a man to guarantee our future, and Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved. I remember the, the inseparable operation of the Trinity we were talking about yesterday. And the risen Jesus stands as a witness to the truth of that guaranteed future. That drives out doubt and fear. And those things come first. Those things come first. Only then is this about a willing obedience and submission to a command. There is a command here uh, to go and make disciples in all the nations. But with those things in place, it can be responded to Willingly, a willingness that follows the willing submission of the Son to the will of the Father that's caught up in that same obedience. So I suppose this is my claim in these uh, sessions that to understand these things and the brakes can be taken off in Christian mission. Uh, Things really could change if we were to start understanding and believing these things about mission and the work of the Trinity. 
even in my stubborn and doubting heart, even in my reluctance to do anything. So remember that minister I quoted right back at the beginning, the one who spent most of his life talking about mission, uh, who then said, now being fully trained and fired up, I'm about to retire, never actually having done it. And let me say to you as we finish that if you are retired, don't retire from mission. Let me say if you're, if you're about to retire, don't retire from mission. If you're a long way from retirement, don't just spend your life talking about it. All of us, we have a great and a good God who has drawn us into what he is doing. So let's join in. It's a happy thing to join in with. Join in gladly. And he is with us to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we confess first uh, that we don't like either admitting to ourselves or confessing our doubts. And yet, uh, our very inactivity in reaching out uh, with the gospel to those around us proves our doubts. So we want to acknowledge that first before you now. So we thank you for this uh, one wonderful few verses of scripture which present to us uh, the victorious and risen Lord Jesus. That barrier between the heavens and the earth uh, struck down by what he has done. The kingdom secured for the future. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to uh, benefit from that, but also to participate in it. So give us a sense of joy as we do that, we pray. And we pray for everyone here present now that this would change us and there will be a real change in the way we go about uh, speaking of you to those around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.